Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that practices what it preaches, well most of the time, on the subject of cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program we have news stories including Suzuki has invested in a Melbourne startup that makes software for self-driving vehicles, Ford pitches at the commercial vehicle sector with new e-transit vehicles, Volvo says its upcoming EX90 will understand you better, and the best car colours to reveal a vehicle's design. And we have a special feature about the life and times of some Rolls Royces, including a road test of the Phantom 5 that was, for some time, the vehicle the Queen used while she was in Australia. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au. Let's begin this program with the news. Suzuki has invested in a Melbourne startup that makes software for self-driving vehicles in an effort to move into the global electric and autonomous car markets. The magnitude of the stake in applied EV is undisclosed, but it's considered to be major, according to the startup's co-founder and CEO, Julian Broadbent. The investment was part of a $21 million funding round. The cash boost means the Melbourne company has decided to push back its IPO that was originally planned for later this year, according to reports in the Australian Financial Review. Broadbent said Suzuki could use Applied EV's digital backbone software in its cars, which would be sold under the Suzuki brand. He goes on to say, quote, but also we're really interested in the fact that they've got production capabilities for vehicles about the size we're building. They've got a good reputation for quality and they can deliver at scale, unquote. Applied EV also makes an autonomous vehicle called the Blanc Robot, which can be configured for various commercial uses, such as delivery of groceries and packages to off-road industrial logistics. The Ford Transit van has had a significant role in the commercial vehicle sectors since it was first released in 1965. Ford has now shown developments for the vehicle at the IAA Transport Show 2022 in Hanover, Germany. The all-new e-Transit custom electric vehicle makes its global public debut. It features new battery technology to enable a targeted range of 380 kilometres and a 124 kilowatt fast charging ability. Not all their offerings are electric vehicles. They confirmed further details about all new Transit Customs with Ford Echo Blue diesel engines, an 8-speed automatic gearbox and a maximum towing capacity of 2,500 tonnes. The all-new architecture will have a lower cargo floor height, less than 2 metres overall height, and independent rear suspension. For the driver, there is a 13-inch touchscreen. The new Transit Custom will be built in Turkey, but customer deliveries of the new Echo Blue powertrains will only begin in late 2023, with additional variants available in 2024. While transit vans offer a practical approach for legitimate businesses, they've also appeared on a number of British crime series as a getaway vehicle for villains. An electric version will be quieter, which, if they are used, will diminish the impact of the theatrical experience. As to whether Ford has considered 
the potential decline in the product placement opportunities. Volvo says that its forthcoming EX90 all-electric flagship SUV, which will be revealed on November the 9th, will have safety features that will be beyond that of any Volvo before it. It is designed to understand the driver and the surroundings and can get smarter and safer over time as it learns from new data and updates. They predict that they can improve overall crash avoidance by up to 9%. The technology allows the EX90 to see when you're distracted, tired or otherwise inattentive, beyond what has been possible in a Volvo car to date. It will alert you, firstly softly nudging, then more insistent if needed. And if the unthinkable happens and you fall asleep or take ill while driving, the EX90 is designed to safely stop and call for help. Advances in production capabilities have enhanced car designers' opportunities to incorporate creases, angles and curves into a vehicle's appearance. But does the colour of the car enhance or diminish our ability to perceive and appreciate all the designer's efforts? Bill Thomas, the General Manager of Communication for Hyundai, says their designer has a black or white approach. It was interesting. I was talking to Luke, head designer of the team. He only has his personal cars in black or white, which is interesting. From his point of view, he he likes seeing the cars in either of those colours. He, he finds that the proportion and the line are most visible in, in either of those two colours, which I didn't know before. But I think it looks good in, in the dark red as well. It's, it's, a, it's a striking looking car and it seems like the sheer sort of striking nature of, of, the, of the design is, is working for customers as well. A number of filmmakers seem to have a similar belief for their cinematic creations. And that has been the news. Overdrive has been testing a large V8 motor vehicle, but mainly from the back seat, which is totally appropriate as it is a classic Phantom 5 Rolls-Royce, which served as Australia's official regal car used by the Queen on at least five of her tours to Australia. Over six metres in length, it had great room for the back seat passengers, as you would expect, but it is hard to find a garage that it can fit into. The car is now owned by the Sir Henry Royce Foundation here in Australia. Brian Crump is the Foundation's chairperson. So as we sat in the back of this wonderful piece of Australian motoring history, I asked what made it so special to him. The very fact that this car was made to the specifications of Her Majesty herself. She personally drew up the specifications and said, this is the car that I want when I visit Australia. So it wasn't drawn up by a committee, it was actually drawn up by her. She wanted cream leather in the back, she wanted pink silk blinds, she wanted a seat that went up and down, and she did not want it armoured. And the reason she didn't want it armoured is that although in the 1960s armoured cars were becoming very popular for leaders of, of states and nations, she did not want to put that division between herself and the people. And it's the fact that it's not armoured that led to the government selling it in the 1980s when an armoured car became essential. And if the upholstery could talk, I'm sure there would be lots to tell. <laughs> I can close off the driver, can I? There is a laminated glass division between us here in the back and the driver, but it would be unfair to do that, wouldn't it? <laughs> 
someone suggested maybe we needed one down the middle so you could block off if you had a, a rather bad guest with him. <laughs> if you've got a bad guest, what you simply do is lean forward and open the cocktail cabinet. Now, I'll leave it to you to describe what is there. Well, we've got two containers on either side, very small, little, almost little sherry glasses in front of them. I'll just put the window down. It is getting a bit warm. Yes. And a couple, two more glasses in the back there. And they're held very tightly in place. But, of course, this has a low-ratio diff, doesn't it? So it can crawl along at a slow speed. It's designed to travel at what's called precession speed, which is four miles per hour. And it can do that indefinitely. It's actually designed to do that. Now, does that mean that it doesn't get up and hustle on the freeway? No, it doesn't. It's perfectly comfortable at 110 on the freeway as well. So it's a lovely feat of engineering that it can do both of those jobs. If Sir Henry was the engineer, who was Rolls? Rolls was a very famous person in that he was both a car salesman and an aviator. He made an alliance with Sir Henry Royce at the time when it was Henry Royce Mechanic, and he said to Henry, your product is a very fine product. I can sell as many of these as you can make. And so that was the beginning of the arrangement which became Rolls-Royce. And uh, Royce himself, what was his background? Royce was an electrical engineer, and he became a mechanical engineer through his own work. He was extraordinarily meticulous. He was never satisfied with any mechanical device until it was perfect. He was quite happy to take a mechanical device made by somebody else and then make it perfect. But his aim was perfection in every single component that went into one of his cars. Was it a time when motoring was really rough and ready in many cases, wasn't it? To drive the early cars was very hard, they were noisy, and it wasn't easy. To come in with perfection was to make a specific segment of the market? Look, I think that's absolutely correct. There were many, many manufacturers at the time. They were developing vehicles which were large, which were cumbersome. They were not always entirely reliable. And what Henry Royce set out to do was to make a car which was reliable and which was as quiet as possible. And, of course, the first really successful model that we have is the Silver Ghost. Ghost tells you exactly how quiet it was for the time. <laughs> Are people interested in that part of the history? Rolls-Royce has a present image, but that past and the significance of Sir Henry, have you seen strong interest in that area? What we've found is that through our social media sites for the foundation, there is enormous interest in the life and times of Henry Royce Mechanic and the fact that he came from a very humble background, the fact that he was really a self-invented, self-made person who aimed for perfection in everything he did. And he ended up creating what we know as the gold standard. And we use the term Rolls-Royce for a whole range of items now which are of the best quality. Mm. And we find in social media people are very interested in that transformation that he was able to bring about. There's also a time when you can embrace it, even if you're not necessarily seen as a, a very rich person. I think of the TV series The Darling Buds of May, which had David Jansen in it. And he was a knockabout sort of bloke who'd done well and had the chance to enjoy that without any pretension. One of the wonderful things of a Rolls-Royce is that they last almost forever. 
So therefore, people can become engaged with them at all different levels. You don't have to go out and buy a brand new Rolls Royce in order to enjoy high quality engineering and high quality motoring. You can buy a much older car and it's going to be still at that same great level of perfection. The wars were a difficult time. In the early 30s, I think they merged with Bentley. What was Bentley's image then? Bentley always made fast sports cars, and that was the aim of W.O. Bentley, was to make a grand tourer, a very fast car. And in 1931, as a result of the Depression, Bentley found itself in great financial difficulty and it was bought out by Rolls-Royce Proprietary Limited. So until the more recent times, it was developed as a product alongside Rolls-Royce. Hmm. It was a time they were the sporty ones, but Rolls wasn't. You, you, know, you can buy a hugely expensive car now that'll do 450 kilometres an hour, which is almost meaningless, well, it is meaningless hmm. in terms of use on the road, yet a Rolls has a different image, doesn't it? It has one of stately and elegant transport. The term that's used is waftability. <laughs> and waftability is the ability to consume a large number of miles or kilometres with great ease and in great comfort. And that's always been one of the aims and I guess the real hallmark of Rolls-Royce Bentley was more the sporting man's or the sporting woman's car because I must say sporting women did buy Bentleys and they did buy Rolls-Royces as well. There's a huge number of women actually who were famous owners of Rolls Royces. It gives a chance for to make a statement that uh, of equality. Oh, it does, absolutely. And if you look back through the list of both famous and infamous owners of Rolls Royces, you will find a whole lot of women who made it in industry or made it in racing or who were actually supporters of early aircraft races, and they all drove Rolls Royces because they were the pinnacle of perfection. Aircraft is significant because of the Second World War too, wasn't it? Did, did that shift emphasis very much as it had to be on fighter planes and engines? And did that have an impact on Rolls, do you think? As you know, Rolls-Royce PLC still exists today, a manufacturer of aircraft engines. And quite obviously during the wars, the emphasis had to shift onto the manufacturing of engines and motors for aeroplanes and for ships. And that's where Royce was also very, very successful. And one of the most famous is the Merlin engine that was used in Spitfires during World War II. And Merlin engines were a very significant contributor to not only the Battle of Britain, but to the whole Western Front in terms of the aircraft what the Merlin, for example, brought with it was extraordinary reliability. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that Royce was always very, very particular about. There was no point in making a car if it was not going to be reliable. And, for example... The Queen's Rolls-Royce helped build on a growing appreciation of the mark in Australia. Margaret Gillings and her husband Barry were the very first members of the Rolls-Royce Owners Club in Australia in 1956. She witnessed the time when our attitude to cars with some pedigree and history changed markedly. Most of us belonged to conglomerate clubs that just covered vintage and veteran people. 
I think there was only one other club which was just one brand, and that was Alvis. There was an Alvis car club. And we just had, or not us, but other people, and we joined in, had this idea that we just wanted a Rolls-Royce club rather than the Vintage Motor Club or the Veteran Car Club or something like that. And it was surprising how many people put up their hand and turned up at the first meeting. I recall that there were only two post-war cars. And, I mean, we looked at those in envy because there's no way we could afford to buy a modern Rolls-Royce. But two of the members had Silver Dawns. One, George Green, also owned about eight Silver Ghosts. So he could well afford a Dawn. And it was a great cross-section. It went from young people, 19s and 20s, I think Barry and I would have been 21, 22, to Sepp Hall, who was the president, who would have been, oh, early 60s, I suppose. And he was a lawyer. We had members of the club who were plumbers and apprentices of some sort. It went right across the spectrum, which made it very interesting, very interesting people. I think the television programs have reflected the idea of the Darling Buds of May, yeah, where yeah. David Jason has a uh, uh, an old Rolls Royce yeah, and twenty and, horsepower. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. I love it when you talk technical. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and I mean it was like that, and I think I said to you before. A lot of our mothers didn't even want us to park those cars out the front. They were ashamed of them because they were cheap. Barry, I think, bought a Model T Ford at one stage for £5 and then discovered, oh, it didn't have a brass radiator, so he sold it, and I think he sold it for 7 or £8 and made a profit on it. But they were very cheap, and that's why a lot of people had them because they couldn't afford anything more expensive. But the thing that changed all that was the movie Genevieve. And once Genevieve came out, suddenly veteran cars in particular became cool and vintage cars much the same. Suddenly the, oh, what a lovely old car, instead of why are you driving that heap? (laughs) And uh, it went on from there. And, of course, now some of those cars that people bought for... Yes. 20, 30 pounds. Are... You think you should have kept them. I think there's a lot of people <laughs> who think right. that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, it's interesting because post-war, there might have been the boom of the new. But mm. then we started to realise that history had its depth. That's right. That's right. And, and ultimately, the idea of restoring these cars and realising that a car that had lasted for 50 years must have something going for it, you know, The ghosts, for instance, I mean, we could get into our 1910 ghost and we could easily keep up on a motorway. Now, we'd probably only sit on maybe 80 k's, but if necessary, you could put your foot down and go faster. The brakes were remarkably good, but not as good as modern cars, of course. And that big phantom downstairs, we've had that even higher than that. Big, powerful engine. So... They made wonderful touring cars, but of course, nowadays, the petrol cost is pretty prohibitive, yeah. so we think twice about going on a really long run in them, but um, a lot of fun. Geneve is a trustee for the Sir Henry Royce Foundation. She and her husband, Dr John Matheson, have been strong supporters for preserving the history of the mark in Australia 
and they've been very adventurous with the Queen's Rolls-Royce before they donated it to the Foundation. Her involvement with Rolls-Royce and Bentley vehicles goes back a long way. My father in England had a variety of cars and one of them was a Bentley. So I always grew up with an aunt, my father, there were petrol heads. I always knew there was a variety of cars available on the market. But I do remember my father driving up and down a deserted Layer airfield trying to see how fast his Bentley would go. And this would have been about a 1950s car. <laughs> I was in the back seat and there were picnic tables on the back. I loved it. <laughs> oh, we have two interns and we went to a uh, history day, the Shannon's Classic, mm. and her father went with her uh, as well. And it was a wonderful way of interacting with the children. Oh, yes, I had a car like that. There were a little bit of don't do this at home as well, you know, like mm. the speed. But it, it's important perhaps to understand the history of that by often reflecting on the cars? Yes, I I think whatever goes on in your childhood has an influence later. (laughs) Who knows? I mean, you have your own children. You wonder what memories will they keep later on? What has influenced their decision? I have a grandchild who sat in a little toy car uh, when he was about two or three and immediately beeped the horn, you know, pretended to beep the horn and said, get out of the way. So... (laughs) Perhaps they remember the wrong things. <laughs> uh, well, you need humour in life. <laughs> so when, when did this car come into the family? It was in 1993 and we had a, another Rolls Royce and the Australian government was putting it up for auction and not many people knew about it, but I happened to see a small article in the Saturday's paper and I said, John, your favourite cars coming up for auction, which was the Rolls-Royce Phantom 5, the ex-Vice Regal one, um, when Paul Keating, I think, was Prime Minister and uh, the Australian government was changing the cars over. This was also getting too expensive to run. It was only used for stately and ex-Vice Regal. It was sold off to the general public and we were the only bidders. May I ask what it was worth? I can't remember. <laughs> but I you... actually can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you proceeded. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, when you're the only bidder, I mean, we were astounded. We were astounded. That wasn't our expectation at all. And then um, it was up at the Hyde Park Barracks in Sydney and Quarry Street, and people could go up and there was there was, a, it was various cars were being sold. And I was I had a free day on Monday, and so I went up to pick it up. And I just saw this enormous car, this huge bunch of keys, thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to get in there. Everybody's watching. I've got to find the right key to put in the ignition and drive off. It was quite difficult. But daunting. It was daunting because the brakes were spongy, things were a bit loose, and it was quite difficult getting into Macquarie Street and driving home. John and Jen are strong advocates of Rolls-Royce's build quality and reliability, and they were prepared to put that to the test. Indeed. Uh, We entered the Peking to Paris Motor Challenge in 1997, which I think is about 10,000 miles, and we were Team Australia. There were three of us from Sydney, and we completed it. We did have our problems in Tibet when we broke a spring, and we had a camp at minus 13 degrees, but we had our own oxygen tanks. We had a special eider-down cover for the car, which, to be honest, I think saved our lives. Yes, people were very cross with us that how dare you take a Rolls-Royce car like this onto uh, a motor challenge. And we said, this car is extraordinarily reliable. 
We know Rolls-Royce would do it. We put a huge amount of time, two years worth, of psychological, mechanical and personal preparation. And we did not change the interior, although we put foam to protect the woodwork and the cocktail cabinets. We put in our own sherry glasses and decanter in case they broke. They didn't. We crossed 13 rivers. We went through the Himalayas. We went through deserts of Iran. We went basically from Beijing to Paris. Did you use the sherry glasses? <laughs> Actually, it's funny you asked me that because, yes. <laughs> but it was at the end when we arrived in Paris and somebody had a champagne bottle. So I just put the sherry glass out of the window <laughs> and they filled it up. I deserve that, I can tell you. And, and, and the other thing is, the other we, it was an um, international rally in about 93 cars. And I can't remember how many countries were represented, but a lot of countries, including from Iran, which was great to meet their drivers. And we were nicknamed Lizzie's Taxi because everybody knew it was the Queen's car. So we were Lizzie's Taxi. Hmm. And when we couldn't proceed because we broke a spring and we got left behind and then we had to catch up again in Nepal, which we did, we were then called Phoenix Five because this is a Phantom Five, so then we were nicknamed <laughs> Phoenix Five. So honestly, the camaraderie of an international event was absolutely fantastic. And this car was being followed by the Daily Telegraph. We had Lord Montague as the reporter sitting in the back. I mean, I couldn't do anything wrong because I was being reported upon it the whole time. <laughs> Did you have to be careful with your language? Did you? <laughs> oh, well, actually, Lord Montague was actually quite good because we broke a spring in Tibet. And um, I don't think I swore, but we were all a bit unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dangerous time in some regard. Well, it was a, an, a, a very tough adventure. Yes. That same route has never been repeated, although the events run every four years. We were the first event to go through Iran. Um, when it opened up, we were the first ones to go through Tibet. And China gave us special permission. And I think that was the only time. And it was it was very, very difficult. You talked about the camaraderie, but there's also that sort of international working together a aspect about it too, wasn't there, if you got to go to those other places? The organisers had a huge job because not only did we start in China, but we also went through Iran where we had stones thrown at us every day. So there were elements of the population that were very anti-Western. But, but having said that, the most of the population were extraordinarily friendly. I think being a woman, it was... Some of the women enjoy seeing another woman driving because I used to take turns. I used to do the afternoon shift, basically. Yes, it took enormous logistics. Yours would have been the most comfortable car in the event. Uh, yes, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was probably the most extraordinary and unusual one. <laughs> As I said, some people were just perplexed that how, how could we do it? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it's it's a tremendous testament to this car. You have now given it over to the... Yes, uh, we had it repainted and a little bit of panel beating where stones were thrown at us. Then we donated it to this Henry Royce Foundation about 20 years ago. We didn't want to sell it because we didn't want it to become a wedding car. We wanted it to be preserved. And this way it gets taken out on public motoring events public are invited to sit in, learn about its history, why it's important for Australian motoring culture, and it is part of our history and heritage. I saw a guy who restored old Porsche tractors, and his principle was that kids could sit in it or could sit on it. All good sculpture ought to be able to play on it. 
I had a, a lecturer once said that, and I think it, the same goes with historic cars. Look, I think it's absolutely true, and we always have the doors open, and we encourage people to come in. I agree with you. I think you've got to live and see and feel and, and hear. I mean, that's all about education and therefore appreciation. The Rolls-Royce Owners Club in Australia has a magazine that is currently edited by Shay Gillings. It's called London and Derby after the location of Rolls-Royce back in the original days and we've kept with London and Derby ever since but it's fondly called by the industry and our own club as L&D. Is it just for Australia or is it worldwide? It goes worldwide. It's technically just for our members but our members are in Sweden, Hong Kong, England, New Zealand. So we have members all over the world and we know for a fact that the electronic copy gets distributed far and wide. Mm -hmm. So because we get all sorts of letters from all over the world that have seen a copy of it and said, wow, I saw this article. Have you got any more information? It was an honour to have the chance to ride like the Queen in a classic Rolls Royce and to meet the people who have given enormous time and resources to maintaining the heritage and history of this great mark in our country. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Crump, Jeanne-Yves, Margaret and Barry Gillings, Shay Gillings and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.